everyone. I'm John Pataki, and this is Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that dives deeper than the pencil John Wick just shoved into your fucking trachea in the genre entertainment and the fandom it inspires. You made your voices heard by voting, and so we're taking it back to the roots of the podcast and opening up the big book of franchises to explore the seedy underworld of the John Wick series. And to do that, I'm joined once again by the co-host of the I Read Comic Books podcast. It's Paul Jaisley. Paul, people keep asking if you're coming back on the pod. And I haven't really had an answer for them, but can you clear up once and for all if you're back? Yeah, John, I'm thinking I'm back. They fucking crushed it. Uh, <laughs> what if you just said like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am back. Yeah. Welcome back, Paul. I'm excited to talk about John Wick with you today. How are you feeling? I feel good. Uh, it was very fun to go back and rewatch the first John Wick. It had been a while since I'd seen it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that film and the whole franchise itself. So I'm glad to be here. This could change at any moment, but I... I feel like you're in it for the long haul with me on this one, right? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. So saddle up uh, for some some hot Paul action for the next at least four episodes. So yeah, so yeah, we're talking about John Wick today. But before that, before we catch up with Baba Yaga himself, I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity of you having you on the show to discuss just a little bit about James Gunn's, uh, James Gunn and Peter Saffron's DC Slate announcement. Um, you've proclaimed previously on the show that you've always been a big fan of the quote, distinguished competition, unquote, uh, DC, from <laughs> right. DC Comics. And James Gunn and Peter Saffron released details, long-awaited details on the first wave of the DCU. So my lead-off question to you is, do you care? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a complicated question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in what they have planned, but it's really hard for me to get emotionally invested in a film that's not going to be out for three years. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I won't, have, uh, I won't have a definitive answer for anything until Mike actually sitting in the theater seeing a trailer or ready to see the actual film. So I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much in that regard. Yeah, it's a lot of like, are you hyped or not? Because there's really nothing much to go on besides release titles right. and like knowing what they're, what what stories they're pulling from, et cetera. Yeah. I was like, man, the Super Superman Legacy is not going to be in theaters until I'm 43. <laughs> that's so <laughs> exactly. that's so crazy. <laughs> like, I, yeah. it, it, I, I can't even think about what's happening tomorrow, let alone 2025. So I want to keep this pretty short, but uh, as, yeah. as short as we can. But I really want to do a quick round of a, a game I'm calling Up, Up, and Away, or To the Phantom Zone to Stay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to gauge your hype level on the main, the, the big new announcements from DC. We have, right. you know, obviously the um, much troubled flash movie is yes. coming out this year. It's just the Fury of the gods, which is like, <laughs> okay. Uh, Blue beetle. Uh, and what I'm actually stoked for is Aquaman and the lost kingdom. I love the first Aquaman movie. <laughs> it's very stupid, but it's very good. Um, so those, those were kind of tucking away because those are, you know, we know what those look like. We know those are coming out. Yeah. I mean, I guess Blue Beetle, we don't have a ton of details on, but Blue Beetle, I think, will tie nicely into one of the announcements, possibly, sure. depending on how the, how they go about it. But yeah, let's play Up, Up, and Away or To the Phantom Zone to Stay. Basically, I'll read through some of the, the announcements from James Gunn and Peter Saffron's DCU announcement. And you tell me if you're excited about it, Up, Up, and Away, or don't care at all, To the Phantom Zone to Stay. <laughs> Okay. A lot of nuance in this exercise. <laughs> the first one that was announced is is Creature Commandos, a seven-episode animated series written by James Gunn himself that's already been in production. Originally in the comics, a team of classic monsters, think like Universal Monsters minus the Universal part of it, uh, mm -hmm. who are assembled to fight Nazis. Uh, and they said it's a modern take on the concept. Uh, up, up, and away, or to the Phantom Zone to say. It pains me to say it because I love the concept, but I don't care about animated animated shows, so I'm sending it to the Phantom Zone. Sorry. Guilty. 
It's weird because they said that these characters are gonna are gonna bounce back and forth between animated and live action once it gets going. But I just can't imagine like Nazi fighting Frankenstein in a movie with like Superman. <laughs> and so it's like we might I mean, be too far beyond the pale at that point. That movie is just made for me specifically, so it wouldn't make a lot of money. It says here this movie made eight dollars. So number two is Waller, spinoff of James Gunn's own like Suicide Squad and Peacemaker series with uh, Viola Davis. Recent EGOT winner, Viola Davis, mm-hmm. uh, she'll return as the ruthless and morally ambiguous head of a government task force uh, being, being written by Crystal Henry from uh, Watchmen and Jeremy Carver, who is the creator of a favorite of yours, Paul, the Doom Patrol series. Um, <laughs> uh, where are you at in this one? Man, again, this is tough because I love uh, Viola Davis and um, I do love that Doom Patrol TV show, but I did not care for Peacemaker or the Suicide Squad film. So that might be in the Phantom Zone for me. Guilty. Guilty. Yeah, I love I loved the Suicide Squad movie. I never watched Peacemaker. Uh, you've recommended the Doom Patrol show to me. So I just can't imagine this character having an entertaining solo series, but we'll see. <laughs> right, again. right. Number three, Superman Legacy. James Gunn is currently writing this, could possibly direct it. They're calling this the true kickoff for the DCU. Peter Saffron was quoted as saying, it's not an origin story, but it focuses on Superman balancing his Kryptonian heritage with his human upbringing. He is the embodiment of truth, justice, and the American way. He is kindness in a world that thinks that kindness is old-fashioned. Sounds suspiciously like All-Star Superman to me. Uh, where are you at? Yeah. Um, I would love a great Superman movie, and I was excited when they announced it initially, but as soon as James Gunn said he was writing it, my my enthusiasm waned terribly. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's so tough. I'm going to say up, up, and away. I think they may be able to pull it off. I'm with you, Paul. I think it all really depends on who they... Who they bring in as Superman? Obviously, um, that's not a hot take. <laughs> like, imagine <laughs> that the, the Superman movie relies on who Superman is. I do think James Gunn handles sentimentality really well, and Superman yeah, can be yeah. is probably his biggest strength in storytelling uh-huh. is the sen- sentimentality of Superman. He's not a he's a he's an earnest and um, hopeful yeah. hopeful character. So we'll see. I hope he doesn't direct it though. It does sound very suspiciously like All Star Superman, which is one of my favorites comic series of all time the like the dc instagram page showed a this showed this announcement with an image from that comic on it so i think chances are pretty good it's going to be very firmly inspired by that that's what we need superman to be in 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 a movie is like a vision of of hope for the future i'm very interested about this one lanterns um (laughs) they said uh saffron was described this as our vision is very much in the vein of True Detective. It's terrestrial based, basically a, a True Detective style show featuring Hal Jordan and John Stewart as Green Lanterns, as space cops. They said it's gonna play a big role in the main story overall as they uncover some sort of threat, some sort of deep-seated threat. Uh, what do you think about this one, Ball? Yeah, I'm definitely curious. Up, up and away for this. I love the idea of, you know, taking that concept of Green Lanterns and just making a very focused, character-driven thing about two detectives. I think that's very intriguing. I'm really interested in the fact that it's terrestrial-based with Green Lanterns. Like, it's it's Earth-focused, but it's, like, about intergalactic space cops. It does sound cool if they if they can pull it off. I don't, like, also, I get really hung up on the true detective of, of it all. True Detective doesn't really know what it is right now. so uh, <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. It could be cool. It's a television show, so they have a lot of room to kind of explore the space and figure out what that's all about. 
So, well, yeah. And again, um, I, I think, I, I think what's interesting is that they coach all this as saying it's like the first chapter. Uh, I kind of hate that branding of it, but it's like, obviously you can introduce these characters on earth and then later down the road, expand the, the, the cast of lanterns, right. Lead into the bigger, the bigger picture. Absolutely. And yeah, it's worth mentioning that they said that this first chapter is called gods and monsters, which I also really don't like. It's like, I feel like we've <laughs> been here before. Next is the authority, the authority, a movie based on a team of superheroes with extreme methods of protecting the planet that first originated in the late 1990s under the Wildstorm imprint. Peter Saffron was was quoted as saying, they're kind of like, the superhero team is kind of like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. They know that you want them on the wall, or at least they believe that. Essentially, it's a superhero movie along the lines of like The Boys or even Watchmen in that regard, where it's like this amped up, ultra-violent, overused word, but gritty 90s take, (laughs) 90s like realistic take on militarized superheroes. Originally created by Warren Ellis, which is not at all problematic. <laughs> right, right. Where are you at on the authority? <laughs> um, I I really don't care. Um, I, so that's gonna. Um, um, again, it's. I liked that James. I well, I didn't like it, but I thought it was amusing that James Gunn avoided mentioning who wrote the authority in the announcement. Yeah. You know, after name dropping a few other creators, and then um, again, it feels like this thing. Like we've already done the subversion of superhero tropes. Authority feels super dated when you try to read it now. It's very much a 90s thing. I just think like a big step backwards. Straight to the Phantom Zone for me. Guilty. Guilty. Um, I tend to agree. I, I'm already, I don't even really enjoy the boys. I like Invincible. No. It, it's just like this, this, like, what if superheroes were real? How would they act in the real world thing is like not why I like superhero stories. Um, <laughs> exactly. I like my superheroes to engage with the real world, but also not have that that cynicism to them. We'll see. You know, it, it could be possible that they're they're flipping it around because the authority was kind of like um beefed up JLA, Justice League. In a way, they all had their kind of surrogate characters. There was like a Batman type character. There was yeah. like their own their own superhero Superman type character. It, it's possible that they're just completely throwing out the continuity of it and these guys are coming in as like the villains who think that they're doing the right thing by humanity, but they're really causing chaos, and that's what forms the Justice League or something. Might be kind of cool, but as yeah. a, as a huh. as a movie in its own in its own right, I would say to the Phantom Zone as well. So okay, gotcha. Uh, Paradise Lost, the uh, famous last words for any series, is a Game of Thrones style drama <laughs> set on the all female island of Themyscira. It takes place before the events of the Wonder Woman films. Which Wonder Woman films? <laughs> Will there be a new Wonder Woman? Who knows? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> where are you at in this one, Paul? That uh, the Game of Thrones reference is a big red flag for me. I really don't care. So it's for, to the Phantom Zone. Sorry. Guilty. Guilty. I. It could be kind of cool if it was like more of like that Greek gods conflict on the island. But it's like don't just yeah. throw Game of Thrones around willy nilly because trying to capture the magic and the popularity of Game of Thrones was akin to be to the mid to late 90s of everyone trying to capture Nirvana again and just completely misinterpreting it where Game of Thrones was popular because of the like the palace intrigue and the talking and the over over sexual content right right (laughs) but I doubt that a that a Wonder Woman based movie is going to have crazy like incest and like sex throughout and I, I doubt that's going to happen and um yeah i hope it doesn't happen <laughs> that's exactly it. the brave and the bold um inter- yes. this is 
what they're saying is the introduction of the DCU's Batman, featuring my guy Damian Wayne, finally bringing Robin back to the screen. Again, really heavily influenced, they said by name, the Grant Morrison run of Batman and Robin and Batman R.I.P., uh, which I know is obviously your your focus. You love this run. Yes. I'm interested to see where you land on this. This is definitely the, the announcement that I was most interested in. Um, again, I think Grant Morrison's run on Batman is one of my favorite comics of all time. I've reread it multiple times. I love the way Morrison introduces Damien. I love Morrison's take on Batman. Um, mm-hmm. This is a strong up, up, and away for me. I think if they can pull it off, this would be really, really cool. And uh, I, I like the fact that they are not afraid to say there's going to be two different Batman. We don't need to have continuity between what um you know what they did uh with the batman last year and like a new diff- take on the character you can have two different versions of the same character i love that idea um, mm-hmm. i'm just i feel bad for the people that are going to be picking up the batman and robin run that morrison wrote and finding out it's not actually bruce wayne as batman it's yeah, Dick Grayson. Yeah. so yeah um there's a lot they're gonna have to untangle to make that work but I love if they can capture the tone of Morrison's run is particularly those Batman and Robin issues. It could be a really, very, a really fun movie. I'm glad you said that because what I'm really wondering is how Damian Wayne translates to the screen. He's been in a couple of the DC animated films themselves, but mm-hmm. Damian is like, it's could be a tricky character to pull off because he's just like yes. a sniveling little shithead and uh, <laughs> is yeah. very, very murder happy. He's young. He's like 10. Yeah you'll have to cast someone that's younger to play this character. I'm wondering how that'll translate, but um, I was, that was my only real gripe with this. I do love the fact that they're splintering off stories that already exist into DC Elseworlds. There's going to be the main yes. continuity of the DCU and then DC mm-hmm. Elseworlds, which I, I also thought it was funny that they mentioned Teen Titans Go as part of Elseworlds. And I was like, thank you for acknowledging that show because I love that show. <laughs> uh, sure. it's, my boy, it's my boy's like favorite show uh, yeah. for better or worse, but your, your brother Keith's alarms are going off for this next one. It's Booster Gold, an HBO Max series about a loser from the future who uses basic future technology to come back to today and pretend to be a superhero. They described it as imposter syndrome as a superhero TV series. What do you, what do you think, Paul? This, this could be great. I, I'm excited for this. Up, up, and away for me. I think Booster Gold is such an interesting concept. It really lends itself to a TV show, and I think it's great. I mean, again, if you don't know, the idea is that Booster Gold is this guy from the future. He was a loser. Uh, he ends up stealing a bunch of superhero technology from a space museum in the 25th century, comes back to our time, and then basically becomes a commercially successful superhero by getting branding and merchandising. It, if you want to do a subversive take on what superheroes would really be like, this is what I want, not not the grim and gritty version. I want the booster gold take on it. So I think this could be really interesting. It's not a character I'm super familiar with, but I know that you and your brother really love it. So I'm excited to see it as a series. I'm going to jump in front of you and say Supergirl one up tomorrow is like up, 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 up in a way. I cannot wait for this. (laughs) I love this run. But yeah, Superman, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, based on everyone's favorite ex-CIA agent turned comic writer, Tom King, his miniseries of this version of like, what if True Grit, but Supergirl? Yeah, we'll see the difference. They said with us, we'll see the difference between Superman, who was sent to Earth and raised by loving parents, versus Supergirl, raised on a rock, a chip off of Krypton, and who watched everyone around her die and be killed in terrible ways for the first 14 years of her life, and then come to Earth. <laughs> she's much more, she's much more hardcore and not the super, Supergirl we're used to. Uh, which I say, like, what Supergirl are we used to? The one, like, the 86 one with, like, Spider Witch and a fun house? Is that, there's no, no one's used to Supergirl at this point. Yeah, I mean, this might be a tough sell because 
that's a character not a lot of people are familiar with. And if you're going to say like, oh, it's a different take on this character, well, no one, like you said, no one's familiar with the other versions. So the CW show is pretty popular, but you know that the CW audience is like the CW audience, like it's pretty sequestered. <laughs> but that's so funny because I totally forgot that show existed until you mentioned it, which I guess goes oh, to yeah. your point. Uh, yeah, but but I think that could be an interesting take, and um, I know that's a pretty beloved run. That's one thing I by Tom King I have not read, so that is on the mm-hmm. top of my pile. It rules. Wow, I've read something that you have not read. Paul, I feel like the, the, wow. I feel like the king of the world right now. No, it's really good. It's like it's something that okay. like was right up my, right up my alley. The art style is really amazing, and yeah. um, it's like high fantasy meets like a uh, depressed superhero. It's really cool. So <laughs> okay, sold. Finally, is they said closing off the first chapter of the DCU. Strangely, is <laughs> our guy Swamp Thing. Where you at? Yeah, I uh, love it. Up, up, and away. Let's they do can it. Capture the, they can capture the feel of the Wes Craven movie from 1982, then Please. I'm completely in. I love the character Swamp Thing. I think that's something you can do a lot with. You can do a gothic romance. You can do horror. You can do superhero stuff. And uh, there's a whole mythology that you know Alan Moore famously created back in the, the 80s for that character. So there's a lot of different paths you can take. I think it's a really rich concept. It would be a great like Guillermo del Toro movie. Yes. Yeah. Just that, that, that gothic longing of a swamp creature, you know? So <laughs> do you remember the nineties TV show? Yeah. Uh, there was a nice TV show in a cartoon. Yeah. So I was, I was deep into swamp thing when that stuff was coming out. I loved it. Oh yeah. I lo- like swamp thing is like one of my all time favorites. And I really liked the um, DC universe, like show that was on for one season, not the greatest thing in the world, but it was uh, really cool and had really awesome practical effects. It looks, it looks great, <laughs> but. So yeah, that's just a quick little detour <laughs> for this for this first run. It's just we just had to talk through it a little bit because I kind of softened on it when I first heard the announcement. I texted you right away and I was like, "I've got thoughts," and you're like, "I've got thoughts." But over the past few days, I've really like softened the idea that maybe it'll be good, maybe it'll be fun, yeah. and like they'll finally get it together. Because I was already I thought DC was kind of settling into something really fun where they were doing this like weird individual movies that didn't connect like the Batman and I mean, Joker, I didn't really care for, but you know, (laughs) they were kind of doing something something interesting where everyone kind of had their own little take on the the character on, on the DC characters. Um, (laughs) So this announcement that everything was going to be interconnected. And again, the story building up over like 10 years was kind of like daunting and kind of frustrating and tiring to me. But over the past few days, I'm like, I've uh I've given my heart over to the idea, and I feel like it, it could be it could be fun if they do it right. For sure, for sure. And what's nice is like I think at this point, I, at least I've learned that I don't need to watch everything. I can pick and choose. So even if it is all interconnected, that doesn't mean I have to like dedicate a lot of time to stuff that I'm just not interested in. So like creature commandos. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now that that's out of the way, it's time to take a sledgehammer to our basement floor, collect our arsenal of guns and gold coins, and check into the Continental as we dive deep into the world of John Wick. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan. You got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. Nobody? But nobody. 
is John Wick. You working again? No, just sorting some stuff out. Task your crew. How many? As many as you have. I thought I'd let myself in. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm not afraid of John Wick. In terms of John Wick, I asked you to do, to do this series because we commiserated a lot about John Wick 3, Parabellum, <laughs> and how it fucking rules. Spoiler alert for that episode, it, we think it fucking rules. I very specifically remember you saying, they can make a million of these things, and I watch every single one. In terms of that, what's your relationship to the original John Wick? It's so interesting. I didn't see it until years after it came out um, because it, on the surface, based on the trailer um, that I remember seeing was not my kind of thing. Like I'm not really big on contemporary action movies. Like mm-hmm. I don't really care about all those, like these, these, these like taken movies that they keep making and all stuff. Like it's just not my thing because sure. they look also interchangeable. So I remember seeing that trailer and I don't know if it just, it was marketed poorly or what, but it didn't click for me. I was like, okay, another one of these movies I can just ignore. And then I kept hearing about how great it was to the grapevine. And then I remember the second one coming out and having people rave about that. Uh, so finally I sat down and watched it and I was like completely blown away by how much I enjoyed it because it has all the tropes of these sort of films that I find generic, but does it in a more interesting way. It's all execution. It doesn't reinvent the action movie wheel, but it, the execution of it, I think makes it engaging. It also helps that by the time I saw John Wick, I had had adopted my first dog. I never had pets growing up. So I actually had a dog when I saw John Wick and it totally made sense. Like, oh yeah, if someone did that to my dog, I would fucking go John Wick on them in a second. So (laughs) it totally clicked. So um, by the time the third one came out, I was, I was a hundred percent in and saw that one in the theater. And I, like I said, I'm in for life. So if they keep making John Wick movies, I'll keep seeing them. I mean, absolutely. The the dog thing is really funny because having kids myself, it really completely changes all the movies about um, like child danger, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I've never had a dog, but I can see myself again going full John Wick on people. If someone did anything to my boys, the concept of like going John Wick is part of the cultural lexicon now as like, it, it almost replaces like going postal and it's like a more right. like PC version of going postal. But it's just right. like, it's kind of replaced that as, as the cultural milestone in in our in our cultural like lexicon i have a similar trajectory but like just a little different where i'd heard a lot about how good john wick was and i back in the day i was like the the world's best mark for like Redbox. i was like who they designed that business for to like scam me out of my money i i always forgot to take the dvds back and would, would, would end up owning them so i rented john wick and like forgot about it and then it ended up charging me for it so i was like i might as well watch this 
fell in love like instantly and I was like this is the coolest fucking movie I've ever seen growing up in like high school I would you know constantly check out like hard boils and all like this um yeah, the John yeah. Woo action films which we'll talk more about in a second so this was right up my alley you really can't go wrong with hitman back for one more job type movies and <laughs> exactly yeah. this this one just did it so expertly and then again yeah John Wick 2 I didn't see until it came out on Blu-ray saw John Wick 3 in the theater and was just like my mind was fucking blown by it so <laughs> again i'm just like on board for life just keep popping these things out please the original john wick was released on october 24th 2014 after premiering at fantastic fest a couple of months before that this movie was co-directed by david leach from like atomic blonde deadpool and like most recently bullet train and chad Stahelski. uh though chad was the only credited director because of some like uh director's guild rules Chad Stahelski was Keanu's stunt double in The Matrix and then went on to become the stunt coordinator for those films. And then, you know, he stayed on to direct all four of the John Wick entries since then. Yeah, the movie was written by Derek Kolstad, who has basically only written John Wick movies. <laughs> and also the, the Bob Odenkirk version of John Wick slash yeah. those Taken movies you were talking about, Paul. Uh, Nobody, which I kind of liked. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good yeah, either. It's fine. The original title of the movie was Scorn. Uh, but was changed to John Wick because, according to Derek Kolstad, Keanu liked the character's name so much that he kept telling everyone that he was making a movie called John Wick, and the producers were like, <laughs> "Okay, that's just that's just the name now." So, how lucky were they if with that? Because Scorn is such a forgettable name, and it would have been lumped in with all those other action movies. I said, you know, I thought it was it lumped in with, but the fact that it's called John Wick and that that becomes what makes the movie interesting. You get sucked into right. this character's world and you couldn't have cast anyone more perfect than Keanu Reeves for it. So like everything that, that fact, which I didn't know until you, to, uh, you said it, that explains what makes the movie work for me. And so in a little like anecdote, it's just like, yes, of course, I couldn't imagine being called anything else because that's what makes the movie work is the character itself. Well, and, and Keanu Reeves had more to do with changing the tone of the film than mm -hmm. anybody involved in, in the movie itself because he was the one responsible yeah. for bringing, bringing the directing duo on from The Matrix okay. and being like, hey, we have this cool story where we're trying to shape it into something a little bit different than uh, what it is, we want you guys to help with that. So he basically believed in the character so much that it, the process of creating the film came from that investment. Like we have something cool, it's not quite there yet, let's work to get it to where it is. We'll talk about this more in a second as well, but it does really cement the fact that it's like the trademark aspects of John Wick are it's like mythic storytelling, but like on a street level. Um, and that's a big part of it. Yeah, the, the name John Wick is just so evocative and cool. I believe it came from Colstad's grandpa, his okay. old nickname or something like that. But to me, it just seemed like a cool action hero name, like the Wick is lit and like he's about to go off and kill all these people or something. But it's like, <laughs> what's in a name? And it, right. a name choice is just so important to the success or failure of a movie. And John Wick is yeah. just such a great name. So like we said before, the film pays homage to works such as John Woo's The Killer, Hard Boiled, things like that, uh, Melville's Le Cirque Rouge and uh, Le Samurai, which Le Samurai is one of my favorite movies of all time. And then, you know, various spaghetti Western films like uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And speaking of John Woo, the trademark like gun fu fight sequences praised throughout John Wick. Like I think John Wick really brought that term to the forefront of gun fu fighting. Everybody was gun fu fighting. They really found their origins in uh, the John, Will, John Woo film from 1986, A Better Tomorrow. It really helped launch the heroic bloodshed genre in Hong Kong, which 
I didn't realize that that's what the genre was called. But that's so perfect. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of plays into something later that I have to say about the movie John Wick itself. You know, combine the elegance and precision of like Bruce Lee kung fu movies with the brutality and violence of, you know, gangster movies going forward. You know, and conveniently, the success of The Matrix also starring Keanu Reeves helped to further popularize and develop the style in the United States. This, this podcast only talks about Star Wars, Marvel, and Keanu Reeves movies. So. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, up next is River's Edge. Oh, perfect. Oh, he moves! You are a fucking asshole. Try something Jim, Jim. Motherfucker, food eater! So yeah, the budget for this movie was 20 to $30 million. Took in a box office haul of $86 million, starring Keanu Reeves as the titular John Wick. Famously, the character of John Wick was written as a man in his, mid, in his mid-60s. They ended up going a more meta direction with this, where instead of taking an older man who's seen a lot and been through a lot, and achieved this legendary status as a hitman. They kind of went with Keanu as like this kind of middle ground, middle aged version of a hitman, but used his film career, his storied film career, reemerging in another mm-hmm. amazing leading role as like kind of like a nod to the fact that this is a legendary guy back once again. Yeah, and like Keanu, he's so amazing in this movie. He's so so good. <laughs> it it play it plays to all of his strengths. Yeah, and Keanu. I remember there was a lot of criticism of Keanu, especially when The Matrix came out, of him being sort of monotone in his delivery, and like that all works in this movie. Like it, mm-hmm. it there's there's a, a calmness to his presence, but there's also this sort of ambiguity. It's like you can never tell how angry he is and it can be read as it can read as sometimes as being monotone but there's a stoicism to it and there's a there's a precision to his an economy to his acting that works for this character and i really can't imagine anyone else pulling it off oh totally and it adds to his it completely adds to like the mythos of john wick as like the boogeyman as baba yaga this guy that just silently sneaks in and just murks like 50 people in a room without ever being seen (laughs) Um, but then when he really does explode with anger, it, it means something because you're like, wow, this guy never re- reaches above a five and he's at about a 12 right now. So we must have really yeah. fucked up. We have Michael Nyquist as Vigo Terrazov, who Stahelski stated that the role of Vigo had been decided after a great many meetings due to the importance and complexity of the character. Uh, and that Nyquist brought both an odd and interesting quality to the character, saying it's a good match. His quirkiness is a good match for Keanu Stoicism, which I absolutely agree with. He's got a lot of little weird quirks to him. He's weirdly the comic relief of the movie, even though he's like kind of the main villain. I think he's great in this movie as well. The person I think is actually the MVP of this movie is Elfie Allen as Yosef Terezov. Kolstad, the writer of the film, described him as a dinner theater version of his father, which are all sons of rich and powerful men, just like (laughs) complete hackneyed copies of their dads. You know, Uh, Yosef is a rich kid who, who imagines himself as a tough guy. But without his father's muscle, he's a punk. And Alfie Allen does this so, so, so well. He's Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. And he just plays this sniveling idiot so well. This guy that you love to hate. And in this movie, he's the perfect spoiled rich kid. Because he's just mouthing off the entire time. And then as soon as he realizes who John Wick is, you see that fear in his eyes. But then he goes (laughs) right back to like, I don't care about this. Like, get me another bottle of champagne. He's he's great. There's something really interesting that I, I want to talk about later on in more detail, but like there's a sense in this film that like John Wick and Vigo and uh, Marcus, the character that Willem Dafoe plays, like they're part of this old guard. They're part of this, this secret underworld, but there's a newer generation of, of people coming in behind them and don't have maybe the respect for it or don't treat it with the importance that they do. 
And like Alfie represents that in this great way. And like he perfectly captures that. It's like he understands the weight of everything, but he's trying so hard to act like it doesn't matter to him. Like being that little snotty rich kid, even though he knows like he really fucked up. Dean Winters as Vigo's right hand man, Avi. Oh, I skipped over Adrian Palicki as Mrs. Perkins, who, you know, the, the decision was made. Like this, this character was originally going to be a man in the original script, but they, at the last second, had a brainstorming session within it with, so they had a desire to create an authentic female action character and then just like kill her off two minutes later. <laughs> she's just like in the movie for like five minutes, but it's Adrian Palicki. Her role is really fun. Um, but yeah, it's, it'd be, I think it would have been cool if they kept her around for the sequels as, as this kind of re- recurring, either ally or, you know, someone that's always trying to kill off John Wick. But that is interesting because I got the sense when I was rewatching this movie. That's like, I don't know if they ever really thought they'd have, they would make a sequel. There's a sense. So if you watch the first ones, like totally. this is kind of made a standalone movie. It's like, if they'd have known, if they'd thought of it as being a franchise, that character probably would have stuck around. But like it makes sense because, you know, they established this rule. Like she messed up. She broke the number one rule of the continental. So there's consequences to mm-hmm. that. So um, yeah. Dean Winters, uh, as Vigo's right-hand man, Avi. Um, Ian McShane from Deadwood as the owner of the Continental, Winston Scott, who is great in this movie, but I think even better in, in the next two movies. So we'll save some time for him yes. going forward. My guy, Lance Reddick, is Sharon, <laughs> concierge of the Continental. Again, He's great. later on, a lot more a lot more to talk about with him. Completely forgot Willem Dafoe was in this movie as Marcus. <laughs> Me too. Playing yeah, his mentor and, and colleague, John Wick's mentor and colleague. Name me one movie that John Leguizamo doesn't improve <laughs> just by being in. I love, always love seeing John Leguizamo. He's fantastic. And then Bridget Moynihan as Helen Wick, just um, appearing on an iPhone for an hour and 40 minutes. And that's another great thing about this movie. I said an hour and 40 minutes. How great is it that it was an hour and 41 oh, minutes? Just yes. In and yes. Out. I was so relieved. Like when I went back to rewatch it, I was like, oh, this is great. I can just squeeze this in or I can be investing a lot of time. Because boom, boom, boom. There's no wasted. There's not a lot of, a lot of wasted moments in this film. It gets right to the point. So It definitely does. Are you saying you're trying not to invest a lot of time in this podcast appearance, Paul? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying like, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you sit down and watch a movie and it's like, all right, here we go. But I give me yeah. a give me a hundred minute banger, and it is a banger, start to finish. Like it really does not let up, and I think that it plays into the, the actual plot itself too. It's very very linear and doesn't depart a lot from the goal, which makes John Wick seem even more like a Terminator in this movie. So, um, <laughs> here's what happens in the movie: uh, we open in media res as John Wick clambers bleeding from a vehicle while clutching an iPhone playing a video of his dead wife, Helen, on loop. We flash back to the loss of his wife and a very touching moment where she collapses and it's implied that she, like, cancer has taken over and she ends up passing away. And we cut to her her funeral where she's being buried and, and this is where we meet John's colleague, Marcus. We see John going about his daily normal routine when he receives a, receives a posthumous puppy delivery from Helen that she had named Daisy. Uh, and left to him to help him deal with his grief. Very real performance from Keanu in this moment because, you know, he's a guy that's suffered a lot of loss in his life. And I think this this part probably came from a very real place for him. He bonds with the puppy, a uh, really, really adorable beagle. And they spend the day driving around in his vintage 1969, not 1970 Mustang. Uh, at a gas station, they enc- he encounters a trio of Russian gangsters whose leader, uh, that shithead Yosef insists on buying his car. John refuses to sell it to him, and Yosef warns him everything has a price. I love, like we were saying, just saying, I love the quick setup for this movie. How John's life feels serene and sterile because of yeah. the cinematography and the lighting. It just feels very 
mundane, run of the mill. My question, my question is, is it ever really that bright <laughs> at 6 a.m. anywhere in the world? Though, <laughs> like, it is in New York. It takes it takes place in New York. So yes, there definitely is some some early uh, sunrises there in New York. I've seen them firsthand. So <laughs> that's accurate. Okay. I was like, oh my god, it's like b- blindingly bright at six a.m. But yeah. you're overlooking an even you're overlooking even more glaring error in the film. And I guess is my one big criticism is that the scene of the gas station takes place in New Jersey, and no one pumps their own gas. In New Jersey, you actually can't. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. State where you can't pump your own gas, so the interaction would not have happened. John Wick pumps his own gas, dude. But I like the way I do like the way the movie opens because it's it gives you everything you need to know. We talk about. Uh, the economy of the film and the the runtime, but it's like you get everything you need to know about that character in like ten minutes, and it's not it's not exactly. a series of an origin story. They don't like have these sort of like extended flashbacks. It's pretty quick paced. Like here's you know his wife dies, he feels bad about it. Here's his dog, he's trying to live with his grief. That's all you need to know about the character up until that point, and they do it in such a great and graceful way in that first uh, like 10 minutes of the movie. It's almost like a little tone poem unto itself. It's just this very calming, peaceful existence, but you can tell that there's a, lo- a longing and a mournfulness there. Um, yeah. And what you said there is true, but also it's like up to, the, up to that point is very important because folding in the two different lives of John Wick into the two different aspects of the movie is just great screenwriting. That economy of storytelling is just really wonderful in this movie. So uh, that yeah. evening after, after, the, after the encounter with the, uh, with the Mustang, the gangsters break into John's home. Uh, they, knock, they knock him unconscious. They kill Daisy, the dog, in a really brutal way. They just kick the damn yeah. thing, steal his car, then place the body of the dog next to him. So when he wakes up, he, he sees that they killed his dog too. Disgusting. So disgusting. Just so hard to watch. <laughs> Yosef takes the Mustang to a chop shop to have the, the, the VIN changed. Aurelio, the shop's owner, recognizes the car and warns him that he just messed with the wrong guy. Instantly, you know, just that knowing look <laughs> on his face of like, this is John Wick's card. You got to get this out of here right now. Just laying that groundwork for what we later learn about John Wick's career is so great. And like something that always works in a movie to me is when someone has a gun pulled on them and like they pull yeah. it to their forehead and they're like, do it, just do it. Like I think that <laughs> right. I was just noticing that like I rewatched Breaking Bad recently and I was like, this, it happened like three times in that show. And I was like, that's always good. That always works. Yeah. I'm not going to try in real life. I don't think that would work in real life. Yeah. Do not try this at all. But John pops in to visit Aurelio who identifies Yosef as the son of Vigo Tarazov the head of the Russian mafia in New York. He relays Yosef's activities to Vigo, uh, who then berates Yosef and explains to him that John Wick was formerly in Vigo's employ as an enforcer named Baba Yaga uh, that once killed a guy only using a pencil with a fucking pencil. It says three guys with a pencil. Oh yeah, three guys with a pencil. John is a man of focus. So I kill three men in a bar with a pencil. Ah! Fucking ah! It turns out when John wanted to retire and marry Helen, Vigo gave him the impossible task of uh, assassinating multiple high-level targets in a real short period of time, like an assassination marathon. Obviously, John succeeded. He was allowed to retire. Vigo tries to convince John not to seek him out and kill him, but John's like, I'm not playing that game. And just yeah. hangs up on him. Vigo sends a team of hitmen to John's house, and this is where the movie really opens up. John obviously murks all of them and enlists 
an underworld cleaning service to dispose of the bodies at evidence. I really love the cop that visits his house. He's like, hey, John, you're back. And he's like, yeah, I just got some (laughs) some old things to attend to here. It's just like a very casual, everything okay in here conversation, even though there's like a dead body behind him. And he's like unsurprised by the fact that he kills all of his men. Vigo places a $2 million bounty on John Wick's head and personally offers the contract to John's mentor, Marcus, who willingly accepts willingly is debatable. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. The cross-cutting scene of Vigo telling Yosef about the legend of John Wick as he's <laughs> striking the ground with the sledgehammer to recover his old guns and his gold coins gets that blood pump and it's just like what you want <laughs> in a movie like this. So well executed. The way that they introduce John Wick as a threat, right? It, it, rewatching it, it reminded me of the way that Snake Plissken is talked about in the first Escape from New York, you know, in in Escape from New York, the way Carpenter gives you the bare minimum of his background. And it's just the way that everyone else reacts to Snake Plissken, not even the character, but just the name Snake Plissken. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought you were dead. Uh, Everyone knows about him and knows the legend and you don't even need to explain it to the audience. It doesn't hold your hand. It says like, this guy's a big deal. That's all you need to know. And they kind of do that with John Wick. I mean, that's everyone's reaction to the name and what uh, Yosef did to John Wick's dog. They're like, oh yeah, you're basically dead. You're a dead man walking because of who you did it to. It's such a great way of explaining who John Wick is in a very, very economical way, you know, in a very easy way. Yeah. Especially to someone that has like, you know, we're, we're all familiar with John Wick as a character at this point, but yeah. to someone watching the film for the first time, not really knowing where it's going to go, it really immediately opens up what you're about to see for the rest of the movie is just like this freight train of revenge that's about to happen. (laughs) And at the same time, it does a great job of giving you a sense of the larger world that the movies will explore in the sequels where it's like, this the trope of a suave group of professional assassins has been done to death, just like a revenge movie has been done to death. But something in the way that's executed here, it feels kind of fresh. And you mentioned, you know, briefly the police officer coming to the house in that scene. And again, I love that because that brief interaction, you get the sense of like there's this huge underworld operating underneath our own. And even the police know not to get involved. It's like, oh, this is bigger than us. The it's like, remember in in Blade, when Blade's explaining like the world that we see is just like a veneer and like the real world's underneath. And like you kind of get that sense in that in that real brief moment. And that's cemented when John Wick calls for the dinner reservation and there's already a professional group of like people to dispose of bodies. You get the sense of like, oh, there's a whole other world operating underneath here that we don't even totally. know about, you know, and that's maybe even controlling things, but, and it's done in a very economical way without ever having to explain it explicitly to you. It's just implied throughout that whole scene. Yeah. We start this, we start to get the sense of the rules of this universe and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the way that the rules themselves are folded into this story really helps the viewer, but also shapes the world just by establishing these rules as the story yeah. proceeds. Oh yeah. And then an- another part of the, the, these fight scenes too, is like, I love a movie that you leave feeling like you just somehow through osmosis gain the skills or whatever you just watched, <laughs> like crazy stunt driving and fast and the furious or like boxing and Creed or Rocky movies. After the scene, I was like, I could probably like swing around a guy and tackle him and then shoot him in the head. <laughs> I could probably do it just like John Wick in this part. But Well, it's great too, because the movie, the, in, that scene like elevates where just like, 
that gun that gun fu style the that's it's all exciting but once it becomes more like hand-to-hand combat by the end of that scene it becomes way more exciting to me i'm like that's the fight choreography in that scene is so incredible and luckily we get more and more of that in the sequels as they go on and what's great to me about the fighting and the action scenes throughout this whole movie is i enjoy the board movies i really like them like give me a guy in a control room saying like block down the exits for like two hours and i'm and i'm good and the board movies kind of established a fighting language for a generation, you know, for a whole yeah. decade. But when you go back and watch it, it's like this real hectic, up close, uh, confusing on purpose style. So it, yeah. it feels like a frenetic fight. It feels like you're watching a fight happen or involved in the fight. But yeah. that gets tiresome after a while. What I love about yeah. John Wick, the series in general, is that they they want you to see every move that's going on. It's like a ballet that they've choreographed for you. And it's exciting because you understand exactly what's going on. It's not just like a, it's not like, it's not like your head's in a headlock. You're, it's like you're an onlooker and you just see this dance playing out. Every fight scene is amazing in this movie. Obviously, that's what it's known for. John seeks assistance from the New York chapter of the Continental Hotel which caters exclusively to the criminal underworld and permits no business on the ground. Business being any kind of hitman, assassinations or assassination attempts within the hotel. Another rule that's divulged to us through John Wick. Vigo doubles the bounty for those willing to break the rule inside the hotel to kill John. Uh, Winston, the Continental's concierge, informs John that Vigo has Yosef under guard at his Red Circle nightclub. There's that reference to Le yep. Cirque Rouge. John enters the Red Circle and kills a horde of Vigo's men to reach Yosef, who narrowly escapes after Vigo's lieutenant thwarts his attempt and, and incapacitates John by throwing him over like a fucking railing. John retreats to the Continental to have his injuries treated. Ms. Perkins, an assassin and acquaintance that we met earlier in the film, sneaks into John's room to kill him. Uh, Marcus has him in his scope, but alerts John with a warning shot, allowing him to get the upper hand on Perkins, who reveals the location of Vigo's front. He knocks her unconscious with the butt of his gun and leaves her with his neighbor, Harry, down the hall, a fellow assassin, <laughs> to await punishment. Uh, but she later frees herself and kills Harry by putting a pillow over his face and shooting through it, another assassin trope. But John travels to a church in Little Russia, which is a front for Vigo's stash for everything, his money, his blackmail tapes, etc., it was perfect. It was beautiful. When Vigo and his henchmen arrive, John ambushes them and kills the shit out of them too. A lot to talk about in this spot. <laughs> Again, those rules being just very casually unfurled as they go. I think it's yes. really fun. I think it's really fun that we learn about them through John's rustiness of being yes. inserting himself back into this world. He's not, it's not like a, a Harry Potter or like you know a, a Star Wars situation where you're learning through the new guy. You're learning with John Wick like becoming less rusty at something he used to do. And I think that's a really cool exactly. spin on that. And it's almost like you get the sense here that, you know, everyone kind of knows it becomes more clear as the movie goes on, especially when his discussions with Marcus and the, the way Marcus handles the, the situations, like everyone is kind of jealous that John was able to get out. Like it wasn't easy for him to get out. Like it took a lot as they, as you mentioned earlier, but everyone kind of knew he'd be back. And you kind of like, by the end of the movie, like you feel bad for John Wick. It's like, fuck, he was out. He didn't have to go do this anymore, but he gets dragged back in. And that's really the tragedy of the movie. I mean, besides his wife, his dog dying, but like the tragedy, like he had the the one thing that none of his associates could have was a, a, a way out of this life, but he, he really just can't get out. He's dragged right back into yeah. it. And that's really tragic in the end of the movie. Yeah, Winston says at one point, like if you even dip up your pinky back into the pond, something terrible will pull you all the way back under. 
there, he has that quick conversation with that bartender who's like, you're back. And I've never seen like this before. And he's like, like what? And she says, vulnerable. You get the feeling that that's his superpower is like that vulnerability and that, that anger because of the love that he lost is just like, just reinvigorated him. The telling line in that scene for me is she asked him like, what was it like to be out? And he's like, it was great. It's better than I deserve. And that like hits really hard by the end of the movie, that line. Another thing that always works in a movie to me, besides pulling a gun to someone's forehead and saying, do it, is um, when a bad guy or like a henchman calls a phone hoping to get another henchman on the line being like, <laughs> where is he? And the, it's like the good the good guy that answers and is like, they're all dead. Uh, that always works as well. But you know, in this movie yes. where Yosef calls and is like, where is he? And he's like, he's dead. Everything has a price. Jelmick, you're a pretty cool guy. The whole sequence in the club is fantastic. Just the way it's lit, the way Fucking they use the music. Rules. It's 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 so it's so well staged, like them running through the dance club, them like you know, firing guns in the dance club and no one really knowing how to react. It gets very it's very like panic inducing that whole scene. But then the whole fight choreography again, like you said, we see everything that happens. Nothing is confusing, even though going through this big like Byzantine club. And I do get to, want to give a special shout out uh, to one of the one of my favorite characters in the movie, played by former WWE and WCW world champion. Kevin Nash, and that's Francis, the doorman at the Red Circle, the one dude that John Wick has the opportunity to kill and doesn't. Leave it to Paul to call off the one uh, WWE wrestler in the film. It's technically a wrestling movie, so there's a wrestler in it. So This happens a lot more in the sequels, but we were talking about that heightened reality and that kind of mythic storytelling earlier. This scene is a good example of that, where this is the only real interjection of the public at large in the film, where it's like, they're like probably seedy people at this club but they're just yeah. pedestrians and civilians. And the action is controlled throughout the hitmen and the mafia. Yes. And you get the feeling that these people are so precise and so well-trained and so dangerous that they can target only the ones that they need to target and cut through. The action is surrounded by civilians, but it's also very contained within itself. That's something that this, these movies do really well, is it really gives you the sense of that underworld because you only really ever get the bad guys interacting. It's like nobody exists in the world besides the hitmen and the mafia. It's almost kind of matrixy in that way where it feels very em- empty and hollow except for the evil in the world and then J- John Wick fighting it. So you, that's re- it really helps that mythic storytelling. Yeah. And, and, and uh, even the scene when he goes to the church, you get that same sense. It's like, yes, you, you think of this church as this like this sort of sacred safe space, but we know that it's it's a mob front. And then you know, John's in there and the, he walks up to the priest and pulls out this giant fucking machine gun, this like right. sniper rifle, like what is going on? But it all works because like you said, it's not the sense that John Wick is this like radical, like dangerous person to the public at large, he has a very direct mission that he's on and he's only targeting the people that have wronged him or are in his way. So it feels very controlled, even though it's chaotic, like you said. That church is a great example because of the kind of heightened reality because it's a church that exists only to be a front for mafia funds and like blackmail tapes and things like that. And it's like yeah. so if you think about it, it's like this church twenty four hours a day, seven days a week is just has people praying in it to keep a cover for the mafia. But it's like <laughs> Yeah, you just roll with it because it's it's part of the rules, you know. Um, and it's great too. In in that scene, like he goes down to the vault at the bottom of the church, and then you have you know obviously the guards there. He takes out the priest. He has unlocked the door, and then uh, there's the the two women who are just counting money. And John Wick knows like they're just there. This is just their job. Like they do nothing 
to do with it. He says, oh, ladies, get out of here. I've got no beef with you. It's, again, a very telling moment about John Wick's uh, approach and his his mentality in this whole film. Ignoring John's demands to surrender Yosef, don't ignore John Wick. Vigo taunts John for thinking that he would be able to leave his old life behind before John can be killed. Marcus intervenes yet again, allowing John to free himself by like ramming a guy with his head covered in a plastic bag. He just goes head first into a guy. Really, really awesome. Yeah. So he accosts Vigo, who reveals Yosef's location. John travels to Yosef's Brooklyn safe house and snipes everyone out of the way while his buddy's playing video games, takes everyone out one by one. Perkins learns that John and Marcus have been in contact and informs Vigo, who has Marcus beaten and tortured brief- briefly before killing him in his home. Vigo calls John to report this, planning to have Perkins ambush him. While waiting for John, Perkins is summoned to a meeting with Winston, who is like, no, 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 you broke the rules, and has her executed for breaking the Continental's code. Winston calls John to inform him that Vigo is planning to escape by helicopter. John races to the New York Harbor, where he kills Vigo's remaining henchmen uh, with his car, basically, <laughs> and then battles <laughs> yeah. Vigo on a dock. John allows Vigo to stab him while they're fighting, eventually disarms and wounds Vigo, leaving him to die. John, with his wounds, we catch up to the beginning of the movie at this point. John breaks into an animal shelter to treat his wounds. Always something that works for me is when someone on the run breaks into a veterinary clinic to like bandage themselves up. See Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, probably the only good part of that movie. But um, John breaks in, Yeah, he walks in there and he finds himself a beautiful pit bull puppy, lets her loose, and then they walk off into the night along the same boardwalk where Helen had collapsed, where they had their final date. It's very poetic. Right. And like you said, kind of t- ties itself up. It's kind of like the new hope of like Hitman movies where it could have just been its <laughs> own thing, but the yeah. Continental really, really found that like franchise opportunity for them. Marcus saving him twice. I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, is he really that much of a badass if he needed this guy to help him save him twice? But I think it really, it really works because John admits that he's still rusty and it's like, uh, I should have made that mistake, but Marcus was yeah. there to bail him out. So I think that helps him in future movies, how John Wick gets his group back, you know? I really enjoyed how that also kind of comes full full circle because in the beginning of the movie, you're not sure what to how to read Marcus as a character. He's at the John Wick's wife's funeral. He's the only kind of person from John Wick's past life to be there. By the end of the movie, you kind of get the sense like Marcus's respect for John is like, he's the one guy who can make it out. There's that great scene when Marcus is being tortured and Vigo even says like, you were the last of the old guard, you know, kind of the idea of like this legacy of this criminality world is being kind of like falling apart on the new generation, like Vigo's son. Mm-hmm. But then Marcus kind of says like, I'm not going to go out like this. So he grabs a gun and it made a very futile attempt to escape. Vigo even says like, I kind of respect that you just tried to shoot your way out of a hopeless situation. Like it's it's a yeah. very interesting character turn. And again, I'd completely forgotten that Willem Dafoe's in this movie and I was kind of kicking yeah, myself. Like he's so great in that last scene. He's so, so perfect. I love the ratcheting up of the tension as this is the final conflict, like the lightning in the background. And obviously it's yes. going to start to rain because everything's better in the rain. The look of this final battle is so, so cool. And so I remember like when the first time I watched this, I felt like this last like, maybe like 10, 15 minutes felt like extraneous. Like John had already gotten revenge for when he kills Yosef, but you mm. kind of needed this kind of button the movie up to, at the end because there's a really interesting line at one point where they Vigo kind of says like couldn't we have just handled this like civilized people or something like, some, something to that effect and you get the sense that this whole underground world they've established in this film operates purely out of 
like formality. Just people just agree. These all these like criminals and assassins just agree. Like we won't do this. Like we're going to act this way. You know. So there maybe there is some honor among thieves. But once that code is broken, it's kind of like everything falls apart. Like anything, anything's permissible at that point. And you kind of needed John Wick to kind of make that point. And the sort of weird begrudging sign of respect at the end, where just like, hey, Vigo kind of realizes like this is the life I chose. This is the guy that was wronged. Oh well, this is this is my payment for that. So there's a very interesting right. sign of respect there at the end of the day. I think the movie needed, and then definitely pays off later on as the as the world gets explored bigger and bigger in the in the sequels. Right, and uh, you know that mutual respect of you know be seeing you, be seeing you, and then they just walk away from each other. Really interesting. I haven't watched this first one in a really long time, and it's yeah. funny because they set up they set up the the ultimate showdown of the movie being John Wick tracking down Yosef and fighting and killing him and like the the the, yeah. the murder of Yosef in, in the end is very unceremonious and just very quick you're like oh there's still like a half hour left of this movie but of course there is because <laughs> it's not just about John Wick getting revenge on Yosef for killing his dog which is the rest, last reminder of his life it is that pulling him back down under how dare you and your family bring me back into this thing that I was out of and he kind of wants to see the whole system burn, which is implied in just this one movie. And then it kind of spirals out in the next two. You kind of see him want to take down that tradition and, and burn the whole system down. Not just his, not just Vigo's safe house with all of his money and blackmail tapes, but the entire institution of this hitman society, this resentment towards that life starts to kind of boil up and Vigo is just the mm-hmm. first target yeah and again these small potatoes and you know the world gets bigger and bigger in the sequels like i made the snake plissken comparison earlier and like the term Mm anti-hero gets like thrown around like way too much it's kind of lost lost all meaning but like what's great about snake plissken especially in i don't know why i say keep saying the first like no one remembers escape from la so the great thing about snake plissken in escape from new york is this idea that here's someone that's he's technically the hero but at the same time he's willing to let the world burn because he realizes what the world has become is meaningless and bad. And it's like John Wick has the same thing. It's like this life he led mm-hmm. was so important. Once he got out of it and had a wife and a family that was different and unique and in his own words, better than he deserved, he kind of realizes that this establishment that I was a part of shouldn't exist. And it's, you know what I mean? And it's like, I can let this burn. And we definitely get more of that in the sequels. Uh, but I again, I, I think Keanu's portrayal, I was reminded a lot of, of Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell's performance in rewatching the John Wick this time. You know, there's the part where, you know, obviously the famous I'm taking on back part. Yeah. There's the part where John Wick says, uh, when, when Helen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep, a final gift from my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope, an opportunity to grieve unalone. And your son took that from me stole that from me, killed that from me. It's not like it's subtext or anything, but it's not like he just killed the dog and the semblance of hope. He killed a part of John Wick that thinks that there's a, a brighter tomorrow for anybody. And like you said, he just wants to burn it all down at this point. I want to ask you, well, first, let's should we rate it out of gold coins? Should we do it out of pencil to the neck? What should we do? <laughs> I, I think we had to go gold coins because that's kind of throughout the whole movie. Uh, the, all, the, all the sequels, the, the pencil neck only really happens in the second one. Out of uh, what would you rate this out of ten gold coins? Okay, this is really tough because when I was rewatching this movie, I was thinking like this is perfect. I like so much about this, but I, 
I know what's coming in the sequels. Mm -hmm. You know, that thing where it's just like, this is great, but I think there's things in the sequels that I like more. So I, I'm hesitant to give it a full 10 gold coins. I'm going to go nine gold coins for the first one with the giant like asterisk caveat that it's a perfect movie and I love it, but I, I think it gets better once you put it in the framework of the sequels. I like it. Uh, I'm going to go eight out of 10 coins. It's a statement of intent for sure. It's definitely something that's like this really like new cool vision of what a hitman assassin movie can be again not fully there yet on rewatch a lot of good ideas hitting the wall but not all of them stick but overall i'm like it just rips the whole time so i'm gonna say eight eight out of ten gold coins what do you think is the best kill in this movie i you know i almost brought it up earlier but i wanted to save it till the end here because when you were talking about the scene where all the hitmen break into John Wick's house and how that's all framed. And you see every action, you see every fight. It's just staged so beautifully. There's that long extended sequence where he's wrestling the knife away from that guy. And it's like, you're watching like an MMA fight or a real technical wrestling match of them trying to wrestle his knife away from each other. And it ends with John Wick basically like forcing the guy to stab himself with his own knife. (laughs) And I think Quit stabbing yourself. <laughs> Again, like I like all the the staging of the gun fu shooting, and it's like this feels way more brutal, and it gives you a sense of like, oh, no one's going to stop this guy. It's the first time you really get the visual scene of, oh, John Wick is not someone to fuck with. That's not just something that people are saying. Like you see it right there in that scene, and it's not like he's invincible, but he's just always exactly. going to find a way to to get out of whatever situation you got him in. Like when <laughs> the guy's hiding behind the pillar and he shoots him in the foot. And yes. the guy's like, hey, and he pops out and then he shoots him in the head. <laughs> Pretty slick. I think that's a great moment. I think I've, I've a, there's like a, a three-way tie for me and they're all in that pool <laughs> hall scene. Number three is just the one we don't see. It's the guy like up against the screen because they're like, ah, he's, yes. no, he's not here yet, whatever. Uh, there's just a guy like dead across the window with like blood splattered all over it. Second place is uh, the sink when he drowns the guy in the sink he drowns him in like an inch and a half of water and the guy's like fuck <laughs> you but like from underwater really great but my number one my number one is like the guy i, I feel weird even laughing about it because it's so brutal but like the guy that's getting out of the pool he's got a speedo on and he's like getting out of the pool and john wick just like shoots him in the pectoral muscles like yeah he just gets he just gets wasted right away and it's so funny because it's like, I'm not, I don't think I've ever seen a guy get killed in a Speedo in a pool before <laughs> in a movie. But there's also that great moment too, like when, uh, when Yosef realizes what's happening. And I think at one point, even he has a gun. John Wick's got a dude face down on the ground and he just looks Yosef in the eye and just shoots the, without even looking at the guy he's shooting, right? Oh, I love it so much. I that, love it so much. That's a great moment. It's just like, I'm going to stare you down while I shoot your friend in the back of the head. It's so brutal. You are rooting for John Wick, even though he's just this unstoppable monster. It's a really great example of that. Again, the overused term of an anti-hero, I think. And, and not only that, not only is he like, yeah, I got your friend. He toying with him so much because he has him dead to yes. rights. You know, he's got. Oh, absolutely. He's, he could he could kill him in that moment, but he's like, we're gonna let this play out a little bit more, which you know doesn't go the best for him in the moment, but. He just stares into his soul. But yeah, that's John Wick 1. Anything else you want to add about it? It was very fun to go back and rewatch it. You know, again, it's been a while since I'd watched the first one. And having the sense of where it goes from here in the back of my mind uh, made it kind of interesting. Because again, I feel like when you watch this first one, it's almost like a standalone movie. You get the sense like they had no plans for a sequel, but it's so well executed that there's so much in here that lends itself to the bigger world that they explore. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. it's... 
it's 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 a perfect example of the type of action movie on the surface I wouldn't like, but somehow the execution performances make it one of my favorite movies. I'm right there with you. I, it's just such a joy to revisit. But yeah, Paul's going to be here for John Wick 2, 3, and then John Wick 4. Can't wait. We still have a talk of the clones going on with Stephanie and Allison recapping the Bad Batch. And then we have a special interview coming very soon featuring someone from a movie we've talked about quite recently. So um, yeah, and then John Wick 2, 3, and 4 on the way. Yeah, follow us on Instagram at B1N1Pod. Make sure to rate, follow, subscribe, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Ring the bell and give us five stars on Spotify. Special thanks to Christian Kramel for our theme music and also a very special thanks. I'm going to flip you a gold coin, Paul, for helping with oh, John Wick. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, can't wait to talk about two. I think two is the one I've seen the least. Yeah. Very excited to revisit that one again. And we'll talk about that next time and we'll, we'll see you then. So thanks for listening.